0: and
1: Hound
2: podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I am feeling really hopeful this week. The sun is shining. We've got some really meaningful easing of lockdown for the horse world. And many of us have a long weekend coming up for Easter, which is also an excellent excuse to eat a lot of chocolate. Not that I ever need an excuse to eat a lot of chocolate, to be honest, but it's nice when it comes in egg form. Our interview this week is with leading show producer, Joe Bates. He talks about why winning at Horse of the Year show is still the ultimate thrill.
3: Going down that centre line at Hoys, that never dulls for me. <laughs> never, ever, ever. It um, literally is
2: the best feeling in the world. I'll also catch up with our news desk to talk about equine obesity, the latest in EHV and the thorny issue of when is indoors actually outdoors. Finally, we have vet Ricky Farr from Farr & Percy back on the podcast. This week, he'll be talking about emergency equine rescues, how you can help prepare for the best outcome in advance and what's likely to happen in these situations.
1: I think if you speak to any first opinion clinician out there, they can probably recount uh, stories of finding horses in all sorts of situations. Uh, In fact, I can probably say now I've had three horses stuck in a swimming pool.
2: So, more from Ricky later. For now, slick on that hoof oil and
4: let's get going. Hello and welcome to this week's Horse and Hound guest interview. I'm Alex Robinson, showing editor here at Horse and Hound. We're now so, so close to hopefully being able to get started with some showing soon and there are actually a few shows set to take place this coming weekend. I know we're all really excited about getting out and about again. I'm so excited to ride myself and yeah, I feel like the most glad of the return will probably be our much-loved showing producers and one person I'm sure fits into this list is Joe Bates, I'm delighted to welcome as this week's guest. Hi Joe, how are you? Very good, thank you. I'm very excited to start coming out to some
3: shows. It's been a long time. <laughs> Hasn't
4: it? So Jo is a showing professional who's won accolades at Horse of the Year show, Royal Windsor and the Royal International to name a few. And she's actually the producer who introduced the middleweight hunter Lomo Windsor to the show ring. And Windsor Windsor's actually featured in our In the Spotlight feature in this week's magazine. So make sure you check him out. Jo started her career on show ponies before moving into dressage. And she was actually crowned junior dressage champion in in 1978, and she's also actually been crowned a Side Saddle Rider of the Year. So, Joe, I'd like to take you on a bit of a trip down memory lane now and draw on some of those early showing memories, if that's okay. And um, which pony did you start your showing career on?
3: Oh, a little lead ring called Revel Sarah, um, ah. a little dun pony called Revel Sarah, and Dad used to lead me, um, and um, he um, was all dressed in his tweed and his trilby and everything, and. Um, if I remember rightly I used to be competing against Colin Rose um, the other professional and um, I used to have to do my party trick was dad used to make me do round the world at the end of every show um, so um, and it wasn't just one way it was both ways so um, i would got that pretty much down to a T by the end of it so that was quite fun um, and um, she was a great little pony yeah really sweet um, and we had huge fun on her and I think uh, she was the one, the one I used to get led to, to learn how to canter on Barbara um, who was our head girl she used to lead me from another pony and um, she used to lead me and then I used to be cantering beside her and
4: everything so that was quite fun yeah oh brilliant and then you had a you forayed into the dressage scene for a bit and you were actually junior dressage champion in 1978 if I've got that correctly so which horse were you on board here? ah scotch
3: royal um he was a 15 hand um bay gelding um who we bought from the countess of march and actually um it was jenny loriston clark who because I've been going there since I was 10 years old, she introduced us to him. And um, yeah, then I used to go every holidays to go and stay with them. And um, that's how I got really into the dressage. I just watched and watched her. And I just, it was just like, I was like a sponge. I just used to soak it all up. But yeah, no, Scotch Royal was an amazing horse. He took me to two European championships. We weren't hugely competitive or anything, but it was an amazing experience. And he knew sort of like all the moves so it was a great horse to learn on Um, Mm -hmm. bless him I mean he was very patient with me um, he wasn't he wasn't an old horse but he was very patient with me and um, I used to practice and practice and practice out I mean we didn't have a, a man or anything in those days we had a field and just one post and rail fence which I used to practice against and I used to go backwards and forwards doing my half passes and changes and he, he one of his party tricks was he was very good at passage so I practiced that as well and basically I put, bless him I mean he must have he must have been so bored but he he, he just carried on and um, he taught me so much and going to the european championships we had ernst Backinger on side uh, from the spanish riding school and um, for the one in austria we um we actually went to stay there the week before and trained with him and um, wow. then did the championships and it was an amazing experience i mean and jenny was chef to keep she's just an awesome lady i i have absolutely the utmost admiration for her she was like a second mum to me and I always said i always said to mum and dad if anything happened to them i'd wanted to be in, adopted by her Aww. because i was just <laughs> I, I i loved the, i loved the family so much and um i ended up doing so many different things there and she's just a, she's just a complete horsewoman very inspirational lady no job is too small for her she was a hard worker uh, she taught you to be very loyal um, i couldn't um, say
4: Anything more highly about her? She's amazing. Oh, brilliant! And and you were also crowned side saddle rider of the year, Joe. And, and so when was this uh, in your career? And, and who were you on board here? On Scotch Royal, interestingly oh, is this enough, the same horse. Yeah. Wow! So he was really versatile.
3: Oh, yeah, no, he was. Bless him, he had to do an awful lot of jobs. Um, That was in 76 (laughs) and 77. That was um, at Hickstead, when it was at Hickstead. That was the first year it was ever held. And I was 14 and 15 when I won it with Royal. And actually, I had no idea about the magnitude of riding in the big arena at Hickstead. Um, I had no idea how revered it was or anything like that until my brother told me afterwards and he said oh do you know what this is Nick because he came along the first year and he said Joe, you know that's an amazing thing to do what you've just done and I went really and he said yeah yeah everybody wants to ride there and I went I had no idea that it was so sought after to ride in the international arena mm-hmm. but I mean obviously that was my first that was my first go and I've still got the sashes I'm, I'm looking at them now <laughs> hanging up in my tack room um, yeah
4: and and Joe, when did you kind of make the decision you know Obviously, had these amazing results earlier on. When did you make this decision to go full time as a professional show producer?
3: Well, I was very lucky to have um, a job at Broadstone, which is where I said sort of, i had a sort of like a bit of a break from it all. Got married, had Holly, and then it was actually John Rose who introduced me to Broadstone Stud mm-hmm. and Liz Walkinshaw, and I started off just doing a little bit of PR there and riding. Dixie Lemon and Daytona, and Daytona was um, a partbred Arab, who we had amazing success with. I think she won every single partbred championship that was going for wow. her. And um, Dixie was a mare I competed in dressage, and then from that, um, basically, my sort of my job grew at Broadstone and I ended up breaking in young horses, riding some of the stallions. I rode Broadstone West Country, Broadstone Chicago and competed them and it just grew and grew um, and I ended up riding Broadstone D there. Yeah. And uh, we I, I used to organise the open days there which was great fun, amazing fun. You know you do every job from platting them all, organising all the helping to organize all the displays. It was it was a really really fun time of my life. Uh but Broadstone D, I can always remember. She was the one that probably set me on my ma- on my showing map probably properly. She was a riding horse, wasn't she? Yes, she was. And yeah. she I can always remember her at Broadstone's um op- one of the open days as a two three year old she was not the prettiest youngster she was quite <laughs> um, a gawky youngster and at the open and they all the youngsters were for sale basically and unfortunately she had cut her eye at the uh, just before the the open day and she'd had stitches above it and she was still she, she was still okay and she was shown in hand but she obviously had a little little cut above her eye but she looked so gawky that Basically nobody was interested in her and we and she didn't attract much attention, so we broke her in and she didn't initially she was she was a bit backward right. uh, and it took a while to really realize her talent but once we'd sort of um got on top of um, sort of how to manage her and how to sort of get her going I think the first show we took her to as a four-year-old she ended up being um, champion novice and that was when she started to attract a lot of attention because she just seemed to sort of like slot into the groove and be so (laughs) easy and she didn't need any plugs in her ears I don't think we really did that at that time I didn't really know much too much about that she was very straightforward easy and seemed to absolutely live for the showing and we just went from strength to strength from there on with her and basically Dee was probably the the one that really set me on my road
4: brilliant and yeah I mean for me one of um those horses I can always kind of picture you with Joe and I mean it's definitely one of my favorites is your hack elusive oh bless him chalky chalky <laughs> who yeah I mean he's still I mean at the top of his game um, can you tell me a little bit about him and how you came to get him and just a little bit about your journey with chalky
3: oh well I'd seen him as a three-year-old at stoneleigh when he was qualified for the cuddy and I always remember thinking wow that's the beautiful horse he's so glamorous And then I sort of kind of watched him as a four and five year old thinking, gosh, you know, there's something about him. And then as a late five year old, uh, Susanna got in touch with me because I'd already had a couple of horses for her in the past. And then she got in touch with me and said, would I consider taking on Chalky? And I said, yeah, I, I definitely would. But I said, let me have him for a month and see what I think of him. Cause I said, we might not get on. And I got on him on the first day and I just thought, oh my God, I love him. Immediately. <laughs> I loved him. It's whenever you get on a horse for the first time, you know, whether in your heart of hearts, whether you can do something with them or not, or whether you, whether you, there's going to be something about them that's, there's a connection. And I mm-hmm. always go with that sort of initial feeling when I first get on a horse, I think, you know, gosh, yeah, this is, this is lovely. Uh, I can do something with this. And as soon as I sat on Chalky, I thought, wow, I can do something with this. And I think after I, I had to resist the urge not to phone her straight away. I I left it, I think I left it three or four days. And then I I just couldn't stop myself. And I said, it's all right, he can stay.
4: (laughs) (laughs) And just to confirm for people who don't know, it's Susanna Welby, isn't it, who owns Chalky?
3: Yes, that's right, yeah. She's been a, a, su- a fantastic owner. She's she's amazing. She just lets me get on with my job. Um, we chat about what shows we're going to do, but she lets me get on with my job. She trusts me implicitly. And I um, now we've got the beauty of WhatsApp. I um, I send her pictures of him and things like that because she can't obviously come and see him. Mm-hmm. So we, yeah. we she gets uh, sort of regular
4: updates about him, which is nice. Yeah, no, I absolutely love him. I do remember watching him win Hack of the Year in 2000. 2006- 2016 i think it was he's just absolutely breathtaking and and joe they always do say that the most difficult horses are the best Uh, have you had any particularly difficult horses who who really have kind of been you know stars of the show when you've got it right um all the top horses have ifs and buts
3: or a little quirk here and a little quirk there which you you have to work around you have to manage and work around and um the only one I don't think that did probably have a quirk is D, Broadstone D. But every, everything, every other one, you know, you have to sort of like just work around them and just manage them, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, Grandeur probably was the most difficult horse I've ever had to produce. Um, he'd won 600,000 as a racehorse, being seriously successful at, at that job. And then I had to retrain him as a show horse. And it took all my patience and um, calmness to get him on side and train him retrain him
4: but they all have their little quirks that's all i can say <laughs> and and just finally joe looking ahead to 2021 have you got any exciting prospects on the team um even just the one name you could maybe give us there to kind of keep an eye out for
3: oh it
4: would be a dream of mine
3: love to win that hack championship again on chalky um, yeah, and that wow, for yeah. me would make me up um, but mm-hmm. I've got other ones coming up but um, they're sort of they're young and you know it's probably not quite their time at the moment they take it takes a while to produce them to be fair and to bring them up and I don't like to rush them too much but um, going down that centre line at Hoys, that never dulls for me <laughs> <laughs> never ever ever <laughs> it um, literally is the best feeling in the world that and also the international probably mm-hmm. um those and Windsor yeah those three shows Windsor's an amazing show to ride at too i'm i'm very lucky i've had some amazing horses amazing owners and i've got a very special team behind me and sponsors so um, what more could a girl want <laughs> <laughs>
4: lovely well thanks so much joe that has been fantastic and we can't wait to see team Bates out in the show ring soon
5: thanks joe
4: <laughs> thanks then cheers
2: So I'm joined today by all three members of our news team to talk through what's happening in the horse world. So first of all, hello to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How are things with you, Eleanor?
5: Hi, uh, it's all good. I've taken my girls out d- jumping, doing some arena hire um, this morning, which was amazing. Except my big mare, especially, was like channeling her inner tiger roll and thought she was going around Aintree at about 300 miles an hour, um, which is always just ah, hold time. Yeah. But um, no, it was all good. <laughs>
2: I think the horses have all got that feel of spring in them. I was able to ride early this week, first time I've ridden in 15 weeks, so that was lovely. Ooh. And um, Alfie, the Connemara who I who I share with my mum, my mum said, "Oh, he's on such spring." And I was like, yeah, yeah. And he really was. He was out and uh, had a little canter up a hill and then uh, he was just having a long road walk. And as soon as I picked up the reins, he was jogging. And then further on, we had another canter up a hill and it was more like, oh, oh okay, we're going to gallop. That's interesting. I didn't know that was something you did. And <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm just going to hang on.
5: <laughs> oh, bless him. I'm glad you're back on board.
2: Yeah, it was it was really nice to to have a ride after so long hadn't been riding since the beginning of December but hopefully now I can get back into it more regularly. And we are also joined today by our senior news writer Lucy Elder. How are things going with you Lucy?
0: Yes, really good. Thank you, Pippa. It is beautiful here today. I'm hoping hoping the forecasters are, are wrong and that it's going to gonna stay nice over Easter weekend. And I suddenly thought this week, I need to buy a diary. I haven't been out anywhere yet, but it's just the possibility and the thought of things keep popping up. I keep saying yes to things and actually for the first time this year, actually for the first time in probably 12 months since we were locked down exactly 12 months ago, I thought, I actually need a diary, so um, that's my job for this week. Yeah, I totally know what you
2: mean. I've just been using my online calendar because mostly it's just, you know, virtual meetings, but uh, (laughs) yeah, I'm also a uh, big fan of the paper diary with a nice cover, so I think I will also be purchasing one. And we are also joined by our news writer, Becky Murray. What's happening with you, Becky?
6: Well, I also got back on my horse this weekend, um, which is amazing. It's been a long couple of months um, unplanned um, out of the saddle, but it was great fun. And I have to confess, I looked out at the next strap as my Connemara, Chloe, is also quite full of herself, but hopefully we are now back in business and looking forward to spring and summer and lots of riding. Yep. Definitely. Well, hopefully things are going in the right direction
2: with the lockdown easing. We are going to talk a bit more about that later. But first of all, we are going to talk about equine obesity. It's a topic that uh, comes up on the podcast and on our news pages again and again, but such an important one for horse welfare. Eleanor, there are some new resources for vets which are aimed at helping tackle this problem. Is that right?
5: Yeah, so the the British Equine Veterinary Association, um, Beaver, has put a sort of what they call a toolbox on their website and it's all aimed at helping vets help owners and help horses. And one of these new things is um, sort of a a list, a table of of phrases and it's really interesting because it's what the vet might say, like he might say, oh he's been enjoying his grass and what he means is, that horse is very fat, but what the owner hears is, oh he looks well. and. And all these things, they're not just made up, they come from um, Tamsin Furtado, who did her PhD on management of equine obesity and focusing on the horse-human relationship she heard so many of these phrases from her focus groups and and the owners were sort of saying well I assumed if the vet didn't bring up my horse's weight that, that the vet was happy with it but then the vets were sometimes feeling because it can be such a taboo subject and how do you bring it up without maybe offending the owners so it's hoped that this will help them start the conversation.
2: Okay and so is there sort of recommendations of better phrases to use or better ways to tackle this?
5: Yeah, so one thing that they really want to do is, and I find it really interesting, there's been so much research into human behaviour change and involving people, you know, telling people doesn't do any good, as we all know. But if the vet tries to say, Well, what do you think of your horse's weight? and then maybe the owner can say, Well, he is a bit podgy, and the vet will might then say, Right okay so what are we going to do about it and make it a we rather than the vet saying you must get that horse to lose weight and make it because it is difficult and all the vets acknowledge how difficult it is to to get horses or any animal to lose weight Um, but if it feels like a sort of joint approach and a a team effort then that might help make it slightly easier or less difficult
2: Mm, so it's a sort of buy-in process rather than vets lecturing owners as such that they're working together Great, that sounds good. Thank you, Eleanor. I'm going to stick with you for the beginning of our our sort of next section. We have been covering the restart of sport and facilities opening up again as we've gone through the next stage of lockdown easing this week. But there was a last minute glitch on this for the equestrian world, wasn't there?
5: Yeah, so so we'd been planning uh, to do a, a lovely page on hurrah let's all get going again," um, and and then on Friday the the news came that it wasn't going to be quite as as maybe most of the industry had expected. So the there was and, and people may remember obviously there was confusion last year because the indoor or indoor arenas weren't allowed to be used because obviously the government had said no indoor sport, and then everyone with arenas was saying, well, these are huge and some of them you know let rain and snow in and and they can't really be classed as indoors so in eventually with a lot of hard work with the uh, from the governing bodies the government said uh, accepted that they could be used and then all the, the guidance then said for the purposes of this indoor schools basically count as outdoors but then this time the legislation that applies to this current phase uh, of, the, of the lockdown easing didn't have that bit in it
2: Okay, so it's sort of when is indoors outdoors and when yeah. is outdoors indoors? <laughs> and our understanding is that riding schools can give indoor lessons to under 18s and that indoor schools can be used for arena hire, but they can't give adult lessons in indoor schools. Is that right?
5: Yeah, so it, it essentially when we when we heard that, on friday you know indoor schools wasn't included this time it was oh god this is going to be awful for the riding schools particularly who have only got indoor schools but the legislation does say that under 18s can do supervised indoor sports so the association of british riding schools chairman george baber has said well he is advising riding schools that they can then teach under 18s, obviously the parents can't watch because they can't be inside, but that that can be allowed. And the legislation also states that you can ride your own horse indoors, so that would cover arena hire. And I know uh, the British Horse Society and British Equestrian are working very, very hard as we speak to try and sort this out, but it is hoped that um, if much of riding school's business is children's lessons, then hopefully they won't be quite as badly uh, affected as might have been thought.
2: Okay, thank you, Eleanor. It's good to hear that those bodies are working to try to get this resolved and presumably at some point, even if they're not able to change anything, the the lockdown roadmap would mean that that indoor schools can be used for adult lessons again. But this is a a blow and a last minute blow to to the equestrian industry. Looking to brighter things, Lucy, you have been working on the sort of sports side of things opening up again and uh, things really are getting going again, aren't they?
0: They are, Peppa, yes. And it's been lovely to see actually so many so many pictures of people just out enjoying themselves. And I spoke to riding school that's not affected by the indoor situation Um, and they were telling me how how lovely it is to see to have people back because it's been months again hasn't it for them so uh, we've seen people out enjoying venting. dressage was definitely on yesterday um, and show jumping and things are all up and running again so it's just it's just nice to have some positive news at the moment definitely
2: and there are some new formats being trialled on the eventing side in affiliated eventing as well, aren't there?
0: There are. Um, I spoke to Little Downham. They were one of the very early early events running for everybody um little down and running the first of their train for eventing days which basically i mean it sounds wonderful no dressage uh, especially on fresh horses in march and you go and you go straight into your show jumping and then you go straight on from your show jumping out onto the cross country and we heard from and caroline powell said that it was just brilliant just to get horses out that especially as because people haven't been able to go and do a lot of training and things for, for the most vast majority of people you know horses are excited they are fresh at the moment so it's just nice to have sort of that competition environment with just a bit more relaxed I think and um, organizer Tina was saying how lovely it was to have people back and I think it sounded very popular So, so that's good news mm-hmm. Great. Well, it's good to
2: have a bit of positivity there. Thank you, Lucy. Becky, we are going to talk about EHV again this week. It feels like the 900th week in a row, but I think it's actually the fifth, but I do get the sense that this story might be starting to fizzle out. Touch wood. That would be fantastic news if this story would go away. What What is happening in Valencia now, which is the venue where this outbreak started?
6: Well the good news is that more horses have left Valencia and have travelled home and the remaining British horses are actually due to leave tomorrow so that's really great news to hear and sadly another horse has been put down in a clinic in Barcelona bringing the total number of horse deaths to 18 but last week the FBI did confirm that there has been no new reported outbreaks linked to Spain so hopefully we're sort of moving in the right direction. Mm, And things are looking hopeful now for the restart of competition on mainland Europe in a couple of weeks'
2: time, aren't they?
6: Absolutely. Uh, Germany and Switzerland were due to lift their restrictions to allow national competitions to restart on 29th of March, and international competition is due to restart from 12th of April in mainland Europe.
2: Yeah, and I know the FEI has been looking at sort of some protocols to to make sure competition can restart safely and has also put in some new rules around scheduling events in order
6: to allow things to get going sort of with some haste, haven't they? What's the detail there? Well, for show jumping dressage, and eventing, emergency board measures have been approved by the FEI to allow date clashes and a reduction in the deadlines for calendar applications for events. This is basically to mitigate the negative effects of the EHV outbreak and COVID as well, especially leading up to the Tokyo games. So hopefully this will allow organizers to get some more dates in the calendar.
2: Well, hopefully we will have a sort of fabulous summer of sport. Once everything does get moving again, although, uh, obviously we will also mourn the cancellation of events that can't run this year. Thank you, Becky. And thank you to Lucy and Eleanor for joining us today too. So now it's time for some expert veterinary advice.
1: Hi, my name's Rick. I'm one of the vets at Far and Percy Equine. And today on this podcast, we're just going to go through um, some of those scenarios that you hope you never get called out to and you never have to participate with. It's one of those signs when you have to call out the emergency services to help with your horse. I think if you speak to any first opinion clinician out there, they can probably recount uh, stories of finding horses in all sorts of situations and I myself had horses in ditches with legs pointing towards the sky and legs pointing downwards. Horses that have got stuck over stable doors, stuck in cattle grids, uh, even had um, horses stuck in trailers that have gone upside down, horses stuck in lorries that have managed to turn over and even, uh, in fact I can probably say now, I've had three horses stuck in a swimming pool and that's so three separate occasions over over my time as a vet so far so the first thing i need to really cover is any animal that is trapped in pain or in distress is essentially a dangerous animal and it's very unpredictable. So I think the first thing with all of these ones is whenever we come out is to gain control of that situation and to not only assess it but to get that animal sedated sometimes relatively quickly in order to help us actually uh, get that horse out of that situation. So some parts of this require you as a client to have some things ready for us when we are so having a good history uh, is this horse normally well handled Uh, is it young is it old does it have any medical conditions they're all the kind of things that we need to know before we arrive also to make sure that you have a head collar a lead rope a potential blindfold as well and also to not panic although these animals are incredibly unpredictable and dangerous as I've already said once they are sedated a lot of the time we just need to stay calm Um, and I'm very aware it's kind of uh, high tensions normally when these animals are found in these situations, particularly if you're waiting for us to arrive or even the fire service to arrive. So one of the most important things to do is to actually tell us where you are. So there are various apps out there. One of them, What Three Words, which I know most people have heard of or use, and also the emergency services know of as well, can help us give us a, a specific location to where you are putting a cone or something out on a driveway or the side of a a field or a gateway just to let us know where you are so that's the first thing give us a location making sure also that you've got consent of an owner so if an owner isn't present to obviously trying to make contact with them as much as possible to try and find out what we can actually do making sure that not only the vet is on route but the fire crew is also on route as well so obviously dialing 999 speaking to the fire service that way and then giving them your location but also informing them of how far we are out most of the fire crews won't actually start to do anything until it is safe to do so and usually that requires your vet to be on site and actually come down start sedating the animal and make an assessment of it as well now talking about fire crews very briefly, I want to uh, do a huge plug here to the British Animal Rescue and Trauma Association, so BARTA. Jim Green was one of the co-founders and um, as a result of his work with Josh Slater and and other people and now through uh, the Horse Trust, they've actually devised a, a system and a training program for vets and fire crews with regards to animal rescues in how to do that as safely as possible and as efficiently as possible. possible so many of your first opinion vets out there in the field may have been on the course and also the fire crews not all fire crews in every county have a dedicated animal response unit but a lot of them do and they have been on this course so a big plug to barter and for any help that they give uh, please do help sponsor them and all sorts. it is invaluable with regards to the training and the services that they provide so I did actually make contact with um, one of our local animal response units, um, I, literally, as uh, unfortunately we managed to fish a horse very safely out of a swimming pool only a few weeks ago, just to get their kind of uh, tact on what they actually would like. And again, they came up with some very practical things that um, that they like to also know. So keeping the, um, the situation as calm as possible. So making sure you have a little bit of feed around if just to keep that animal calm until we can be on site and start to get them sedated. Also, to know where the animal is going to potentially go after its rescue. If it's been in water, it's going to be cold. We need to get it somewhere dry and warm pretty rapidly. Do you have transport? Do you have a safe stable? And where is that in location to where you currently are? Although some of the fire crews, again, do have lifting um, equipment, not all fire crews do when it comes to um, uh, animal handling. So what is the name of your local farmer? Do they have a JCB? Do they have a telehandler? Something like that. Something to help them with regards to the mechanical lifting of horses out of the most precarious situations. Um, also, it's really important, again, that we are, are concentrating on the health and safety. Now, from a practical point of view, I would always say if we can just have one handler or the owner around and everybody else keeping their distance, listening to everyone on the fire crew side, they will advise you. As vets, we just are there to help assess the patient and look after the patient once the rescue has been done, but also to make sure that they're adequately sedated. The rest of the time, it is down to the fire crew, and please listen to them. If they're advising you to stay out of an area or to stay quiet, please do listen to them. They do know what they're doing, and they were particularly adamant that we just kind of we want to work with you, not against you, to, to make sure that we know horses are very anxious in this time, as well as owners if we keep it quiet the likelihood is that we'll have a good outcome so it's an incredibly stressful time for anyone when it does come to actually calling the vets or the fire crews out to help rescue your horse the key things are to remember stay calm stay safe have all the information available have your accurate location and make sure that you have those numbers for transport if necessary once your horse has been rescued
2: thank you ricky Next week, Ricky will be back to talk about how vets and horse owners can reduce their carbon footprint and contribute to a more sustainable world. And of course, we'll have an interview for you and all the week's news as normal. Thank you for listening to the Horse & Hound podcast. It's growing all the time, with some of our episodes now having over 3,000 downloads, which is phenomenal. Please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word even further. See you next week. The Horse and Hound podcast is a Media Cage production.